Hi, this is Terry Blersch, sitting with Mako, getting ready for our interview. Some of you, you might know me, some of you might not. I'm a singer-songwriter, guitar player, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let me begin sure. by asking you how you first got into music. Oh, okay. Um... You know, I, as, as far back as I can remember, I've always been, uh, I've just always loved music. Uh, as a young kid, I used to, uh, you know, listen to the radio, um, Elvis and Al Jolson, of all people, <laughs> were, were influences, uh, or, you know, pre-Beatle days. Right. Um, uh, loved Elvis, used to sing the chum chart in the backyard there, all the songs. Um, I used to sing that song, uh, The Witch Doctor. I don't know if you yeah, remember yeah. that. You know, ooh, ee, <laughs> yeah. ooh, ah, ah, ting, tang, walla, walla, bing, bang. And drove my parents nuts. How old would you have been at this point? Oh, eight. Eight, nine years old, maybe. And, and was the guitar in your life at that point? Or how, when did um, that guitar... Yeah, um, the picture on the back of my yeah. uh, newest CD, Play, Play It All Day is uh, a picture of me at nine okay. uh, with my first guitar. Um, wasn't really playing it then, <laughs> to be honest. It was one of those uh, unplayable uh, sort of Hawaiian acoustics, you know, that everyone had. Um, but yeah, I was just always, uh, always into music and especially Elvis. Now, um, I'm of a certain age, but, you know, I never saw Elvis on Ed Sullivan or anything. But right up until the Beatles hit, you know, his music was, was still around. I used to just love his old, you know, early And this stuff. is more records than performances, like TV performances or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, because there wasn't much, I guess you know, not. there yeah, wasn't yeah. much around on, on, on TV, really. No, it was, all, it was all radio and records, you know. Um, my dad uh, loved, you know, hi-fi and stereo, so even though we were of, uh, um, you know, not that well off, we always had a, we always had a stereo. Um, I can remember going to uh, Yorkdale Shopping Center with my dad, and they had the uh, the Claritone stereo, which was the newest thing. Right. And that's the one that's worth some money now, the one with the big globes yeah, yeah, on yeah. the speakers on either side. And they were doing, uh, stereo had just came in, so they were doing, uh, you know, all these demonstrations like the train the train going by and everyone was standing there going wow you know so music music was always in the house um uh elvis presley and his cohorts you know uh our next door neighbors um it was three brothers the youngest my age the two older brothers they had their room plastered with like elvis pictures and fabian and chuck berry and you know all the old rock and roll guys um yeah, so that was my. I've just always, always been a fanatic for it. Al Jolson. That's <laughs> funny. Um, there was the two movies about him right. with Larry Parks, and um, my family loved that. I remember those two movies, and we used to, uh, you know, listen to him a lot. But it was mostly the rock and roll and pop, you know. So you got the the um, fake guitar. When did the real guitar come into your life? Um. I guess my second guitar was, again, an acoustic. It was a harmony acoustic, and it was, uh, oh, 
couple years later, around 11, I guess. And I was 11 when the Beatles hit. And I guess that's when I actually started to play a little bit. Right. Did that come uh, easy to you? Um, I guess it did, looking back. You know, I can remember having the... Uh, it's funny you say easy, because I still have my uh, original guitar lesson book that I got, and it's called the E <laughs> E-Z, Easy right, Method. Right. And it just took you through the six strings and... You know, there was four or five very simple songs in there, and um, I remember going through that in a night when I when I got it. Um, so that's when I sort of actually started to try to play. I guess at around eleven. You know, like like I mean, you've heard this a million times. Say eh, that when the Beatles hit, um, it was all over. You know, it was um, can't can't uh, emphasize enough the impact of that. I saw them twice. I'll tell you a little bit about wow. that. Wow. Um, but I'll tell you something, how, how uh, much of an impact it was. Uh, when the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan show that first night, uh, they opened the show. He did a little introduction, Ed did, and then they, they, they played three or four songs, and then, uh, then they didn't play again until the second half of the show. Well, and, and my mom will attest to this, my 94-year-old <laughs> mom, hi, mom, will, will uh, uh, tell you this is true. Um, so after the first, their first set, I ran into the bathroom, washed my hair, my Elvis hair, and switched over to the, the Beatle look. In between sets that night. Wait, you were wearing the Elvis hair that time? Oh, yeah, yeah. I still had the Elvis hair, and uh, that was it. Into the bathroom. How much did you know about, did you know about the Beatles before you saw them on that Sure. Well, yeah, a little bit, you know, because there is that Canadian connection, eh? I don't know if you know the story of, uh, I think it's Paul White. Uh, I might have I that name that. wrong. He was, uh, he was from Britain, and he, he came over here um, for Capital or for EMI. Um, and he had an office here, and he knew about them, and he, he started playing them. So we did in Canada, we did get, like, in, in uh, summer 63... We started getting some Beatles stuff. Like I can remember hearing "She Loves You" before they really hit. Right. Um, and I've read a little bit about him. He literally printed up like 500 copies down at um, down at RCA or somewhere huh. in Toronto. And apparently, those are collectible if you can find sure. one of those original things. So, did know a little bit about them. Um, and they had hit the hit parade before the Ed Sullivan show, like the end of 63 and like January. You know, don't forget, I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one before they came. Right. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about them, but not a, you know, not a lot. Okay, so other than changing your hairstyle in mid-show, <laughs> do you remember how it affected you? Oh, yes, I do. It was... Uh, it was just mesmerizing. I mean, I was already a guitar fanatic and... Um, I should mention, like, um, wasn't o only Elvis. Like, my dad really liked guitar. He didn't really play, but you know. So we had the Ventures stuff and right. and, and uh, the String Alongs, a band called the String Alongs that did a tune called Wheels that we loved. And so I did. You know, I was already a guitar fanatic, and uh, you know, Elvis. As much as we loved him, he sort of was 
the previous generation's yeah. guy. And um, yeah, when the Beatles hit, it was just, I mean, the look. Um, what struck me later when I got to see them more and, and, and know about them more was the concept of a gang of guys without the macho um, and sort of delinquent sort of uh, thing that went with like the 50s whenever you had a gang of guys together. Interesting. Um, That really stuck out for me, like how they were so tight with each other, like they were impenetrable, their uh, camaraderie, Um, you know, in those press interviews and stuff. You can see that they're... um, So that, that... interest that that interests me and and the concept of um of uh no front guy Hmm. uh oh to this day i find that fascinating i always when i think of them i think of them as anti-heroes like they were they were the group that fired the lead singer you know (laughs) that couldn't play anything we got rid of him and now it's just us the musicians and and they're you know, when you look back for all the uh, hysteria, they don't do that much on stage mm-hmm. except deliver. Right. Like uh, I watched just the other day, I watched the um, on their first tour in 64, the Hollywood Bowl performance. And I mean, they come out and they open with twist and shout. And it's like as if the kids aren't <laughs> excited enough anyways. <laughs> they start with that, you know, and it's just... And, you know, Lennon's there and he's just you know, that stance and that I'm just here singing. It's like I'm playing guitar and singing. Like, I'm not going to dance around. I'm, I'm, I'm laying it down for you here, you know. Um, so there was that aspect. No front guy. And the, 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 the group concept, like, everyone was sort of equal. Um, there wasn't a lot of, like, phony show business shtick that had... had uh, you know, a lot. You saw a lot of that in pop with with like all the Bobbies, right, right. pre the Beatles. You know, um, all those guys. It was very tame and very. I don't know. They just struck you so real. And then that that edge that they had with their humor. Um, you know, without being bitchy, but they had an edge <laughs> edge to them, and they were funny. Yeah. And they were smart. You know, they 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 were able to handle the press. Now, mind you, they had had a full year in Britain of dealing with all the uh, naysayers and the skeptics, you know, like, oh, they're just, you know, the hair, the gimmick, it's all just a gimmick, you know. Did you relate to one more than the other? Like, when you watched the four of them on stage, were you, I, I know you said it was a band concept more so than anything else, but as a as a potential future player, did you identify with one more than the other? Um... Not really. I mean, you know, Ringo's in the back there, so like you didn't see <laughs> yeah, yeah. him as much. Um, but like as a guitar player, did you want to be George or John more so than in the other two? Um, well, I love the singing. I love the singing uh, and the guitar playing too. I remember, I remember my dad. Uh, right away, he he focused on you know uh, George Harrison. You know, right away he was like, well, which guy can actually play the guitar out of these out of these kids you know and so that guy looks like he's actually can play and you know John and Paul did most of the singing Mm -hmm. so I guess it was hard not to uh sort of see them um I love the singing always reminded me a little of the Everly's 
Um, it's funny with that country series that was Ken Burns' series, you know, I mean, one thing that fascinated me about that, you see the lineage and you see the, the, see the line that runs through American music, if you will, mm-hmm. like, you know, jazz, the blues, folk, country. Um, and you can draw a line. I don't think it's that far out from, from like uh, Bill Monroe right. and that high harmony singing to the Everleys. To the Beatles, it's it's not that much of a stretch, you know. Right. So the singing was very important. So yeah, maybe focused a little more on on, but it was the whole package, you know, um, with them that uh, that blew me away. You know, so, they had everything. It was it was just one of those things where the stars aligned, wasn't it? I mean, it was the, it sure. was the baby boomers. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine that uh, Twist and Shout was was uh, the original version was only two years old mm-hmm. when the Beatles did it, like the Isley Brothers version. And yet it was completely new to the baby boomers because, you know, before that we were too young. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't really know any of that music. Um, so it was it was new to us, you know. And then the, the, the fashion changed, the ba- you know, it was just, boy, it all hit. You know, the stars aligned... <laughs> And did it make questions. you want to become a musician? Um, yeah, but I think I did before that, even you know. Um, but that that for sure was, you know, everything else about music was sort of someone else's for a baby boomer. Right. Elvis, your parents' music. I mean, I love the old standards and that. Uh, as I've got older, I love that music more and more. Um, Nat King Cole is one of my all-time favorites. Same birthday as me, by the way. <laughs> Proud of that. March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And, um, uh, but, you know, that set, the, that really kicked things in. Uh, you know, anyone of my age, I think, would tell you the mm-hmm. same thing. It was, it was just so revolutionary. The fashion, everything changed. When did you get into your first band? Well, um... That would have been, uh, I was about 12 years old. I had been, um, I had been playing guitar a little bit. Um, a, a, a friend of mine who, a drummer friend of mine, I used to see him walk to school, didn't know him, used to see we'd cross paths on this, uh, going to the same junior high school. And um, in those days, it's hard to relate now, I imagine for young people, but you know, the hair was such a big thing. Mm-hmm. And it was a real problem at school and stuff. You know, you weren't allowed to grow your hair long. And, um, so I was one of the early long hairs. I mean, it wasn't that long when, <laughs> when yeah, I think yeah. of it now. But, you know, the fact that you were going with the dry look and the bangs and everything. And, um, you know, if you saw another person who had bought into that, that was that was a bond immediately, you know, because there weren't that many of you that uh, everyone loved the Beatles, but not all that many changed their hair and sort of really bought into it. <laughs> and, so, and fewer changed their hair mid-show. Well, mid-show, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyways, I hooked up with this friend, met him, and, uh, and he, had a, he, he had a band, and so you should come over, you play guitar, you should come over, and uh, I guess it was about 12 years old. It was uh, the first band, and it was your typical first band I think there was three guitar players and a drummer because bass was 
Bass was still a mystery at that <laughs> at that age. You know, everyone wanted to play guitar. And are you playing Beatles songs? Um, not really. Isn't that a funny thing? Someone asked me about that the other day. Um, I still find the Beatles early catalog really fascinating, and I, and I still I still hear guitar things once in a while that I go, wait a sec, what are they doing there? That's not as simple as I thought it was. Um, but at that age. Um, we weren't playing that well, so we did do a couple Beatles songs. Um, I remember my very first gig I did was in grade eight at the Beverly Heights Junior High School at the dance, after, you know, the after school dance. Right. And um, we did three songs in the gym there on the big stage. We did, uh, I remember it well, we did uh, Ticket to Ride, Beatles. We did Get Off My Cloud by the Stones and um, Love Potion Number 9. And I wow. forget who had the hit on that at the time. Um, just three songs. So that was sort of my first gig. But uh, I was saying to someone the other day, by the time we could actually start to play for real, like around 14 for me, um, you had gone past the old Beatles catalog. So now you could play, but no one did. No one covered She Loves You. Wait, wait. So what would you have played at that point? Uh, we were more like we did um, some of the first songs to learn, The Early Animals, like uh, We Gotta Get Out of This Place and um, It's My Life. Um, uh, what are some of the other things we did? There were songs that were just in the air that you didn't even know where they came from, like uh, like What I Say. Didn't really know the original uh, Ray Charles version but that was a lick that you somehow everyone knew that you had to go boom 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 do down boom do do um give me give me an example of a lick that you figured out early on that changed you the sorry the what like a guitar lick or something that you figured out really early on in your guitar life that oh, maybe that's changed interesting. you that's interesting um I don't know if it, there was one that really changed, but um, learning the early venture, venture stuff was sort of a, a prerequisite for any, any guitar player, right. like, you know, because they had all that great instrumental stuff, you know, Walk Don't Run and yeah. Perfidia, and um, there was a couple other groups like that as well, uh, while well, I mentioned the string alongs. Um, so yeah, you had to learn those. Um, but I don't think there was anything really monumental that way, or, okay. or you know, as far as far as one thing. Um, so tell me, you know, I, the, the way I picture bands um, is that you you start in high school or in junior high, get together and you you practice and you learn songs. Um, at one point, that changes and you decide to become a professional musician, and it's not the same thing anymore it's not always a bunch of friends playing together right but do you right. remember that moment where no I should ask you what did you learn from those initial bands um, about being in a band that that you find fascinating today um well we did you know it wasn't professional I in some ways it was I guess because we, we did get paid a pittance but um <laughs> You know, we we actually did gigs like right. from the time I was like thirteen, twelve, or twelve, twelve. My first one, um, we did these little teen dances and stuff. Um, uh, you know, the church 
church dances and there was always the school things. Um, and, you know, because of the surge of like after the Beatles or so many, everyone wanted to, to do it. So there was, there was quite a scene of, of teen dances and, and stuff like when I was in my teens. Like all the churches had them on the weekends. Um, there were these like teen clubs where, you know, it'd be like in a, uh, some kind of a hall or, or right. other, you know. Um, we, uh, we entered a battle of the bands in, in 1968. By this time, we were sort of, uh, the band was Revolution, which was, uh, you know, I had that before Prince, by the way. <laughs> and um, we were in, the, we, this came up the other day on Facebook, we were, we were in this battle of the bands called Phase 68. And it was at uh, Centennial Arena in northern North Toronto there. And um, I don't know how many bands. Like, there was like probably 50, 60 bands. It went all day. Started in the morning. They did it in heats. Like of, uh, I think it was 10 bands in each heat. And then right. they picked a winner out of that. And then we all played off. The top 10 played off at the end. And uh, we ended up coming in third. There was three wow. first, second, and third place. And we were quite young compared to some of the, well, I would have been 15. Um, and uh, funny story about that. So we played at like 9th, we were in first or second heat. And we played like 10 in the morning. And um, you did like just a few songs. Do you remember and what songs you would play? I do. Uh, one particular, because um, Sunshine or Your Love, The Cream was a big hit there. And we were huge fans. And... Um, so we did that, and you know, I I had I, I was known for I had the solo copied perfectly, and we did it pretty good for 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 teenagers, and uh, so we won our heat, but everyone was doing Sunshine Your Love <laughs> after that, so it was like this. Judges were sick of it. If you did Sunshine Your Love after us, you were out. <laughs> they were just so sick of the song. Anyways, we came in third. Um, so then again, it wasn't real professional like bars or anything, but we were, and then we did, we did, we had a friend who was, you know, trying to be our manager, our, just our age, and I remember we put an ad in uh, After Four or one of the teen sections in the Telegram or the Star, I forget, um, you know, third place finishers, blah, 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 and we ended up getting some more of these same gigs, you know, um, mostly churches and uh, church halls and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, back to your question. Um, it's a little fuzzy when it actually became uh, real professional right. uh, as opposed to that. After high school, um, I kicked around with that same band for a year or so. And then I, then I hooked up with um, uh, Stephen Ambrose's younger brother, Rob Ambrose, James. He went by James Ambrose. And uh, over the course of about four years, like hanging out and living in band houses and trying, trying to get a record deal and stuff, we ended up doing quite a bit of recording in New York, which was amazing for like an 18, 19 year old. Um, and at this point, you're thinking this is what you're going to do for the rest of your oh, life. Oh, definitely. Uh, even before that. Yeah. Even, even in high school. Yeah. I, I, I forgot you were on that track. Yeah. Um, Oh, definitely. In high school, I was cocky as hell. Figured. I remember telling all the kids in the class, in two years, we'll have a big party at my <laughs> mansion. <laughs> you know, uh, that never quite panned out. But no, that was always the thing. And the guys I was in the band with in high school, um, 
that sort of faded out after high school because uh, they weren't as dedicated as I were. One one was went to art school, and that was sort of his real right. love. Um, and the other, just he did, he did another guy in the band. He didn't he, the same thing. They weren't they weren't they didn't see that as their destiny as I did. And uh, do you remember what you would have thought like when you started recording in New York, like? In your mind, what was what were you hoping that that would bring you? Well, it was all pie in the sky, ridiculous dreams. When I think how young I was, and right. to me, it was like obvious that this was just the natural path that my life was going to take. I'd be, I'd, I'd be big. I had sort of taken a background role as more of a support uh, guy um, with uh, with that recording in New York and stuff. Um, but I ha also had designs on, you know, being my own singer songwriter. And, um, I mean, it was heady times to be in New York mm -hmm. and, and play, I played with Bernard Purdy when I was like 18, 19. Really? I played with uh, Hugh McCracken, wow. uh, played with McCartney. I played with, um, uh, Bob Mann, you know, uh, he was based in New York at the time. Um, How does this happen? This is jams, or what, what's what's going? No, this on? is recording. Wow, this is recording with um, with James Ambrose, and uh, uh, Mort Ross was the producer, who was a local producer. He produced Motherload, huh? um, among others, um, and we had gone to New York to record. So it was like I was brought as like a, a session backup musician, and the rest of the guys were all New York. Uh, hired. Guy. What did that experience teach you? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, well, see, uh, geez, see, seeing those players, like a, a more mature myself, would have would have uh, been a lot more pragmatic about seeing how the industry worked. And uh, if I wasn't so dedicated to just being an artist, uh, I might have, I might have, um, thinking back, there's no way I was mature enough, but I could have seen that this could be a future. I'm sort of on the in here with the studio guys, like, you know, but we were on another track. We right. were going to be famous artists, uh, being a studio musician never never crossed my mind um so yeah what did i learned from it well um i learned about a lot about recording i guess that was probably the most interesting thing it was a great experience i met um uh while we were down there one of the projects i worked on teddy randazzo was was brought in as an arranger um teddy randazzo wrote um uh going out of my head Mm. for little Anthony and the Imperials and Hurt So Bad which was their follow up uh, and a bunch of other stuff that he wrote he never had much exposure up here but he was actually he's actually in a couple of those teen movies with um, who was the radio the New York radio guy with the payola and everything New York? yeah oh what's his name Fried Al, uh, Al Friedman that's yeah. right Alan Friedman I think or Freed, Alan, I think Alan, it is. Alan Freed, yes. Check your uh, Google, Google, that, Google that for us. <laughs> I always think of it as Cleveland, not New York, for some reason. Um, 
Well, I think it was New York. But, you know, he, Fried, yeah, okay. he did a couple of those corny movies with sort of... Uh, sort of the B-level rock and roll yeah, yeah. artists and stuff, right? He didn't like... He never had Elvis or anybody like that, but he had... And uh, Teddy Randazzo was in a few of those movies. Good-looking guy. Uh, now, he would have been just pushing 40 when we met him. And this was early 70s. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he had been a guy, a possible star, you know, but he had, he had gone into... He had sort of gone into the background wanted to be a writer. Writing was his main thing. Right. So he, by this time, when we met him, it's funny, eh? We thought, like, he, you know, kind of an old man. He, he would have been, like, 40. Right. Right? But he is, had passed. His time had come and gone as far as being a star. But he was a very talented guy and did arrangements for strings and brass and, and was still writing writing songs and stuff. And so that was amazing, to meet someone like that. And uh, on one of the rec- couple of times, he copied my guitar lines uh, and for strings. And, of course, it was... You know, totally flattered at at that. Uh, so and I so I did learn a lot seeing the recording process. Did you uh, think like at that point were you a really good guitar player? Like, how did you view yourself as a player? Um, you know, a stylist. I'm not a I'm not a trained guy. You know, I can read a little bit, um, but nothing like the next generation of guys that that went to school. You know, when I was young, there was when I was coming out of high school, there was I think it was a year before Humber opened. There was no legitimate um, training. Right. I, I can remember, you know, I had the chance to take guitar lessons when I was very young, and uh, I was turned off it immediately. It just didn't seem to have anything to do with the the mu- like the way they start you on the rudiments, which which you have to learn. But like today. It's legit to study rock and roll or to mm-hmm. study jazz. That that wasn't around, you know. So, um, you know, I'm an ear player, and um, I guess I was considered, you know, pretty good for my age. Um, uh, I did play with those guys. Sat beside Bob Mann and played with him. Now he plays circles around me, but uh, but I'm I'm more of a stylist. You know, I, I do what I do. I'm I'm, I'm I've never. I never had the discipline to be like, um, you know, to to try to be a Tommy Emmanuel or, or right. anyone like that. I, 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 you know, I was more interested in the song. Um, although, uh, you know, around the time that um, became aware of blues, that's when I started to take guitar a little, little more serious. You know. And so how did that happen? Well, that happened. Um, that happened like a lot of us with the influx of the British right. uh, players, you know, um, and and uh, I can't emphasize enough the Toronto players because there's as guitar players, all the guitar players of my age will tell you this: there's the, there's that lineage in Toronto that is so heavy. The world doesn't know about it, but it it is important. Um, coming from Robbie Robertson, of course, and I think it was Nick Carter, the guy, I might have that name wrong, that, the guy that he replaced. Um, but that whole guitar thing was so legendary in Toronto that before I even knew who the band were, like when they were still playing with Hawkins in the early 60s, there was all this lore that would filter down. It was just in the ether of like, you had to have a Telecaster, 
Um, the National Finger Picks was a thing because Robbie used them. Um, if you've read Robbie's or Levon's book, you know they talk about uh, how he was getting his sound and all these crazy things. Like he'd tell people for as a joke that he tore the speaker, and that's how he was getting like the fuzz, the distorted sound. And right. this filtered down to like a fourteen-year-old kid that didn't even know who these people were. Um, and then the next generation, if you will. You know, because I never saw Robbie in those days. I I would have been walking up and down Young Street, you know, going to the joke store to buy a stink bomb <laughs> to go into the movie house with. Little did we know that Bob Dylan was upstairs there rehearsing with the band. Right. You know, um, but um, so there was Robbie, and then there was all the sort of the next generation of guys that I did get to see, and super influ- influential. Freddie Keeler, that album. Um, David Clayton Thomas and the Shays, mm-hmm. a go-go. Just so important for me. I learned I learned to play blues guitar off that album. And and again, like a lot of us, off the John Mayall Blues Breakers album with Eric Clapton. Right. Those were like gigantic. I learned all the solos as best I could um, off both those albums. And that was it. And then... You know, from there, like you've heard this a million times before, and then you start to see who the writers were of these songs. You went back, and then, then you know, all those guys got a second wind. All the old blues guys got a second wind in the 60s there. BB, remember seeing B.B. King at the Rock Pile? Um, you know, Muddy Waters, all the guys, Buddy Guy, they all had a big comeback, Albert King. And so then you went back, and you listened. You know, I'm still going back. Isn't it funny? Like, I'm finding... You know, watching that country series, yeah, yeah. Um, the old history, and, and it's just, just amazing how great those players were. Um, but for me, that was it, the blues and that Toronto thing, I can't emphasize enough. I hope I didn't leave anybody. Well, Freddie Keeler, for sure, because of that album. Dominic Triano, come on. I mean, he was the yeah. epitome. Um, Mike McKenna was in that age group, too. Um Bobby Starr, I forget his his real name. Um, so when people talk about the Toronto sound, and I know that I've heard about Robbie Robertson's influence on that, does it ever end? Like, was there a point where there's an end point to the Toronto sound, or does it still continue today? Well, um, it does in the fact that all of us of a certain age were so influenced. Mm-hmm. Um I'm still doing Freddie Keeler licks on my newest CD. Right. Um, forever be uh, influenced by, you know, the Mandela to me anyways were like, because the, 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 the Hawks never really got to see the Hawks in person and they didn't have a whole lot of records either. Um, but um, the Mandela, you know, they sort of, they had taken it another step further you know they're with that whole soul crusade thing that's another story the world doesn't know like the mandela the show they used to put on how mesmerizing it was with the strobe lights um you know it was rhythm and blues but it was um on steroids you know (laughs) and uh man it was it was something else i mean they were so yeah is it um I think it's still there, like, 
in that, like all the people that, that grew up like me, that play, I mean, we're still influenced, I think, by it. I don't know if there's, a, you know, music is so broad and scattered now. I can't, I, you know, um, wouldn't say that there's, a, you know, a Toronto sound anymore. But, well, I shouldn't say that. Some people say, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, they'll hear something, right? oh, that's Dominic, you know, that's mm-hmm. Dominic influence, or that's, you know, Freddie Keeler. So, um it's hard to say. It's hard to say if, that, if there's really a, a how you know whether I, I don't think it's ever stopped because it hasn't stopped. It's in me. Like right. I'm, I'm influenced still by all those guys. You know. So you go to you have this experience in New York. What happens on an album? The recordings that you did in New York. Nothing. Um, I think Ambrose had a single out of it that got some play. We were just on the edge before CanCon and all that. Might have done a little better had that been around. Uh, there was a typical um, artist management fallouts. Um, and I think only, I think there was two singles released out of a whole album that we recorded. And it all just, you know, it all just sort of dissolved. So when it dissolves, what does that do to you? Well, you know, I was probably about five, four or five years out of high school at that point. So... Um, you know, had a, uh, never made any money, but had some looks at the big time, you know, and, uh, um, I guess that was sort of another starting point, um, mm-hmm. for me. I kicked around for a couple of years. I worked for my dad. It was a bit of a come down, I must say, after that, you know. Um, and then I, then I started, uh, playing a little bit with backing up different, you know, just around town and stuff. And, and it wasn't until the late 70s that I finally decided to do my own band. Um, so that, that was a big change. And what, what, what influenced that decision? How did you come to that decision? Well, just, um, just out of necessity. Like, you know, I'd always seen myself as a singer-songwriter and, and doing my own thing. Um, so it was just time to do it, you know. I had uh, my experience before that had sort of been almost at a higher level, you know. I had sort of almost bypassed, you know, sort of the bar scene, right? And so it was like it's a bit like starting over. It was like, okay, go out and and play, you know, go out and play live because I haven't played that much live, you know. It was all recording and stuff there for for four or five years. Um, yeah, so it was just uh, get out and do it, you know. <laughs> get off your ass and go out and do it, you know. And that was like late 70s till, I don't know, early 80s and around there. What did you learn from that experience? Um, how hard it was to keep a band together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because... Um, you know, then there was a there was still a fairly strong bar scene in Toronto. You could, uh, you know, it was at least a half a dozen places that um, you know, sort of a rhythm and blues, uh, not too well, you know, local act right. could play. Um, but uh, it wasn't like we had. It wasn't like we were really making a living. So for me as a front guy, it was like sort of a, a revolving band, 
you know. Uh, around that time, that seemed to be a thing with a lot of the players, that you had to have like two or three things uh, on your plate to, right. to fill your week. Like, um, you know, unless you were really successful with a, a successful band that was touring or something, but just locally. Um, so that's what I, that's what I learned there was managing a a band, you know, being the leader of the band, which a lot of times was no fun. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that a lot. Well, because I I remember, you know, when I stopped doing it, I don't know, mid eighties or something like that. Um, I remember thinking like, by the time I'm on stage, I thought I'm going through the motions. Like I've, I've, my whole week's been like setting up the guys and, what's the new material we're going to do and and you know can we get a rehearsal or two can we do this like there's so much managing that that the acts performing um which is what you were doing it for you know which was the most important thing started to take a back seat almost you know uh because it's hard to it's hard to manage a band (laughs) it's funny because you mentioned about the watching the beatles and seeing this band this unit that that was equal or this cohesive unit. And right. Even, you know, them with their success couldn't last very long. Right, right. And just how difficult it is. Like, it amazes me how difficult it is for a band to stay together. Yeah. But it, but, but it makes total sense why. Well, you know, it was almost just by default. Like, I thought you were going to say, or maybe you were getting at this, like, why, were, why did you become like a leader when you know, your ultimate thing was that group yeah, yeah, sort of the thing. Band thing yeah. It just, you know, I sort of had that a little bit in New York, but uh, as you get older, it just became, became less and less feasible. Like, people have lives. It isn't about that first thing that you do where, like the Beatles were, right. where everything's secondary. You know, there's a time in your life for that where everything's secondary, uh, home life, girlfriends... Everything is set secondary, and you're that group. Um, then, then it became like just more professional. Whereas, like, well, if you're a singer songwriter, you want to do your, you got to hire people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was sort of, it was, I, you know, I've to this day, that's what I'd, uh, that was still the ultimate thing for me. Would would be in a group, or at least in a group where you had one other person like me sort of a multi-instrumentalist like I, I play a little piano like not just John Lennon piano for right. writing songs you know um, but sing and I'm a pretty good guitar player so you know that's what I always wanted to have like at least one other guy like myself I've never that's another thing about the Beatles you know like the best front man like how long do you want to his, listen to one right like that was great about the Beatles that that variety, right? And 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 you know if you liked some, you know you like John or you like Paul, well Paul's songs were too easy and John's too much finesse. But it's that juxtaposition that yeah. made it all work. Like Paul's songs sounded all the better because of John's songs and and vice versa. Yeah, you know. Um, so that that was always the ultimate thing, but it just wasn't feasible. Um, you know, if you want to do it, your own thing, you got to take the reins. And, and, you know, I never really had, I never really had a partner like that. You know? So you find yourself not disillusioned, but at this point, you, what, what decisions do you make? Do you, do you become a sideman or? 
This was after New York? Yeah. No, sorry, after New York and then starting your own band. Yeah. I mean, disillusioned by the band. Well, I was very disillusioned after New York because I got a, a you know, there was some things that I won't talk about, but you got, you got, a, a, you got a, a, a glimpse of the ugly side yeah, yeah. of the business when money's involved and backers are involved and backers of questionable um, backgrounds and stuff. Right. It was pretty, yeah, when I came out of that, I was like, no, I want to be a farmer. <laughs> you know, I want to get my girlfriend and let's move to a farm. Like, it, it scared me a bit. put down the guitar? No. Okay. No. I was always, like, working at home. I had a multi-track tape recorder that I was always doing that, like, working on songs and my own little world there, you know. But, um, but you know, as that faded away, and, and like I said, I played with, backed up some local people and then finally my own band and then it just uh uh it just became too much there was less and less places to work right and it became harder and harder to book and harder and harder to concentrate on the music with all the you know there's no managers or anything yeah. like that right when you're doing doing it all yourself um yeah and i sort of um i never 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 put it down but sort of then i then i sort of became I sort of became late to it. I went the opposite way. Then I became a sideman, like in, in like through the '80s and into the '90s, even sort of became a sideman. What did you learn from that experience? So, so from, from being somebody who's who's in a band or being the leader of the band to becoming a sideman, like what kind of transition was that? Um, <laughs> well, I'm not proud of the fact, but at first it was like. Uh, this is great because I'm lazy and it's like I don't have to talk to an owner you know when an owner comes over to me to, to say hey you guys should be on now I'm like I don't speak uh, English you know? I mean did it make you appreciate music more? no no um, no it didn't make me appreciate music more uh it's just a, a a thing I fell. It was a thing I fell into. I, I I learned a lot from being sideman. I think I became a better guitar player through that. Um, Can you explain why? Well, just having to get outside your own comfort zone as a player. Like when you're you know when you're playing for other people, be it the material or or things they want you to do. Um, uh, and I got to play for the first time because with a lot of the really good Toronto players. Um, it's sort of funny that, you know, they had they had started off doing that. I was the opposite. I had I had sort of done you know, done recording, had a had a shot at it in the early days and and uh, and then I had sort of gone the other way. I'd gone backwards in a way. Right. But I learned a lot from all the great players that I got to play with, um, through through that. You know, I worked with um, well, I worked a lot in Virgil Scott's band. I worked for Rita Shirelli. Uh, I worked for a couple of sort of um, Laura Hutton, who was like a, uh, she had lots of corporate work, you know. So it was a bit of a lazy time in that um, here I am, at least I'm making some money for a change and no responsibility to speak of beyond musical. Right, but musically, you're learning lots of stuff. Like you have to learn new material all the time. Yeah, no, I did. I did learn a lot through that stage, and and playing with, um, you know, who were sort of the front line guys. Like I had never been a, a side man, so that was new for me. And I got to play with uh, 
so many of the sort of top um, side guys in Toronto, uh, which was a new experience for me. So that upped my game a little, and I had to learn to read a little bit too, which I'm still not a good reader, but I did learn to read a little bit through that, you right. know. So that was a good experience. I can't complain about that, but it was it was more just by default of, um, uh, you know, I, the, the dreams sort of become smaller of, of becoming a big recording act, you know, the way the industry was changing already at that point and less opportunity. It was a little bit of a default thing. Well, people are asking me to work for them and they're paying me. Let's let's go do it. I don't have to deal with an owner. I don't have to book the band. I don't have to be looking for work, you know. And so I, d- I enjoyed it and I, I think I became a better player. But you must have also been very good that people would call and ask you to be in the band. Well, yeah, that's for them to say, you know. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, there's no question. I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad. You know, as I say, I have I have a thing I do. Um, I'm not a, uh, you know, when I look at the guitar players that are out there today, it's just, it's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, do you know Tommy Emmanuel? Yes. Um, I'm going to Panama in March with um i should mention i you probably know i I, i'm involved with uh three or four of lance anderson's um uh theme yes themed he's done very well with this yeah don't like to call them tributes because they're (laughs) not um they're not costume why do you think it's they've done so well i mean I, i interviewed lance and i know he's a brilliant musician but for some reason, he seems to have done quite well with all the themes that he has, whether yes, it be Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and an Englishman or Woodstock yeah. or whatever. Yeah, least, Last Waltz, yeah. especially. So being part of that, what do you see that he does or that that makes these theme shows so successful and so in demand? I think a lot of it's demographics. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back again. It's it's the baby boomers. Um, I heard someone say once, uh, people don't know what they like. They like what they know. You know, so you've got a um, combination of, of uh, a big demographic, the mm-hmm. boomers, and that's their salad days music. Um, I think I, you know, is it nostalgia? I don't know. It's uh, I think there's there's just such a big demographic there, of this is the music we grew up with, and you know if it's done well, um, pe- people enjoy it. I mean, I mean I love that music, and uh, the response we get from the audience is um, it's quite overwhelming. So. Sometimes you get people coming up to you after the show, and and uh, you know, quite emotional a lot of the times, you know, because I mean, nostalgia is like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's uh, this music is, is is a big part of their life, you know, and it, it's it's I, I I don't know if there's too much other like where do they see like an older generation? Where do they go anymore? Like for entertainment, right? This is a nice night out. It's a little nicer than just going to a bar or whatever. Um, I don't know. I think, I guess it's just, um, it's the strength of that music and 
the vast number of pe you know people that grew up listening to and loving that music, and uh, maybe there's not too many live things that turn their crank anymore out there. As a player in these theme shows, do you approach learning this material, playing this material, any different than any other gig? Um, yeah, it's, um, as I say, we don't like to call it a tribute. It's not about playing the music. It's not about reproducing the records, per se. Right. Um, one thing nice about the Last Walsh show or the band stuff is that uh, they never played a song the same right. twice. There are the records and stuff, but if you listen to the live, a lot of the live stuff, I mean, it's really different. Mm -hmm. um, so almost by instinct of growing up on that music, you are affected style-wise. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do some arrangements as per their live shows and that. But, you know, um, nobody does a solo the same twice or anything like that. You know, we're all sort of players in right. that respect. Um, and I guess the, the other thing we have to mention is the fact that these are pretty heavy-duty players. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like Lance knows how to pick musicians. Yeah, oh, no, fantastic musicians. Um, uh, no question. No question, and, and but you know we're we're doing it as sort of as they would do it. It's it's music that we've played all our life. We never play it the same twice right. because it's and it's that kind of music too that can be interpreted like that. Um, but yeah, they ha they have been very successful. It's um, you know on the one hand it's great, and on the other hand you wish. Like, I wish I could go out Terry Blurch mm -hmm. and do those same venues. Yeah, I wonder about that. Because, okay, so you've released two solo albums in the last number of years. They've gotten critical acclaim. But it must be frustrating that you get the response you get on playing old stuff, more so than to try to do your own stuff. Or do you look at it that way? Um, yeah, to a certain degree, for sure. Um you know, the industry's just changed so much, Marco. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I got, I, I brought you um, a couple of Downbeat magazine. You know, my first CD. Um, do you know Bob Pudignato? Yes. He really championed my first CD. He loved it. He played it a lot. And he was the one that sent it to Downbeat magazine. I would have never thought of sending uh, to that, although they do these days, they do in small letters say jazz blues right. and beyond but i and they have one page you know that they dedicate to blues each month but i would have never thought of sending it there now he championed that and and uh, then i got a review in downbeat which uh you know till the, to this day they'll never be able to take that away from me mm -hmm. i got a review like even a bad review in downbeat <laughs> would be good you know let alone a nice review um but the nature of the industry now like you know, I'm still kind of invisible beyond um, my peers and, and, and you know, uh, people, people in the industry. Um, you know, there's not the uh, entry level, even when I did it first time around in the late 70s, early 80s, like I said, there was still clubs. You could, yeah. you could have exposure, you know. 
Um, Can I ask what what you would have what you would have hoped to achieve by releasing that first solo album in 2007? I think it was. I was nine, actually. 2009. Okay. But um, well, uh, I had got to a point where I thought, you know, you gotta let's do it here. You know, you've always been, you've got songs, you've always demoed your songs. You know, um, don't forget years ago the concept of doing a record like was so expensive mm-hmm. like in the vinyl days I mean you had to you know the dream was to get signed by right. a, a record company beyond that like forget it like a few people put out their own records and stuff but come on but you know as that changed um, it was just time it was like you know you gotta you gotta do it now or never you know and um, uh, you know I again the industry was already in pretty, like locally at least anyways, again, entry level. Uh, it was hard to know how you'd, how you'd get anywhere from there. Like you get a nice uh, review like that in Downbeat magazine, but you know, it kind of went by the wayside. Like, you know, not too many people even know that I got a, a nice review like that. Um, uh, like what do you do from there without without a management and big money behind you, and and even even back then record companies, as they have been for a long time, what's left of them, they're not into artist development except for maybe the one or two chosen that they mm-hmm. decide is going to be like a Taylor Swift or somebody huge like that. There's no artist development like that anymore. Uh, I can remember in the '80s there, the guys were getting publishing right. deals like a small salary to to write a song every month and you know, there's nothing like that now it's but just, so knowing that what did you hope to achieve with the album well you know i'm an artist i'll do this till i drop i have to do it there's there's no question it's just for your own as an artist you have to get your stuff out there you know in the back of your mind you're hoping uh realistically today maybe someone covers your tune right that's getting less and less too though because like the pop market, um, like who are you going to write a song for today? I mean, watching that country music special, even if you go back a couple of decades, people are still flocking to Nashville to pedal tunes and stuff. Yeah. I don't know who you pedal tunes to anymore. Yeah. I mean, you see like the Taylor Swift, the Beyonce, there's like seven writers on those tunes. It's all corporate committee. Mm-hmm. You know, they get in a studio, they start with an idea... Hopefully the artist has one or two lines that they can, you know, give to the professional songwriter to develop. And, like, it's, it's, uh, it sounds pretty depressing, I know, but, like, who, but that's, you know, if, if, if the best case scenario, yeah, that was, you know, you'd get some airplay, um, realistically at my age, you know, you'd, you'd say get to the festival circuit, become like a, a national hit, right. a national commodity that you could tour Canada. Um, you know, if you could break in Europe or the States, that would sort of be a bonus. But I guess realistically, that's sort of what I hope for. But uh, but it's tough, you know. I mean, at, at, at least in, in Canada, we do have the, um, you know, we have the Toronto Blues Society. Mm-hmm. There's not too many genres that have like a, 
that's a stepping stone like that community right. because they have the Maple Blues Awards and stuff like that. Um, uh, never, never got a sniff from them, but um, but Downbeat likes me, right? And, and they um, liked your second album too, right? Yeah, yeah. Got so okay, again. did did your goal for the second album was that any different? Um, no, I guess the situation hadn't changed much. It's again, it's something that I will do. I, you know, again, I, I hoped I'd get uh, uh, some recognition. Like you know, one of those awards, it can, it, it is a, it is a step up to like the festivals and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, and that's that's probably you know something that I would hope. I, right. I, I could get to you know I'd be, be the, the business today I don't know I don't know anymore like here I am I've been in the business like now people are saying well the only thing you know they're not paying anything like even if you ha- you know the old days was like um, you know your dream would be a hit record right. and the rest would follow from that you'd be able to tour you'd be able to blah 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 people would want your music for, for a film maybe and stuff like that now it's like you know there's no money in any of it and people are saying well now you have to you got you got to get your song in a TV show. That's the right, right. that's one thing anymore. The viable thing that still exists that you might get paid for, or in a movie, you know, kind of like that. Because CD sales now, CD sales are somewhat viable still because older people still buy them. Mm-hmm. People still buy them at festivals, and uh, I mean, I love it. I still want something to read. You know, I Me mean, too. I know it's it seems like it's virtually gone now, but. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a viable thing. Your CD, you sell them at, uh, but other than that, you know, um, nobody's, nobody's paying anything. Now I was, uh, I was, uh, number one on Stingray Blues in March this year mm-hmm. with my new CD. Um, and I think it's for the most plays or something for that month. Wow. Um, so you know what a thrill, and then I got picked a couple of times in the in the in the Maple Blues magazine, where they do you know the top blues of the month. I've been, in fact, last issue I was number two just after Al Learman, good friend of mine, nice. um, and I was number one uh, on that list a couple of times. But like the Stingray thing, now it's in, I read it's in nine million homes in Canada, uh, because it comes on your cable. Yeah. You yeah. Um, but they have all the genres. So, yeah, it's in 9 million homes, but how many people even know that they have... Like, I've found a bunch of people don't because yeah. I've mentioned it to them. Well, Stingway, well, it's on your cable. Didn't you know that? Oh, okay. And there's all the different genres. So then you break that down to how many are actually listening to blues. Um, but I was number one for March, and, um, you know, my last SoCan check was pretty pretty small. <laughs> You wouldn't know that I had been number one anywhere. Right. So there just isn't the, you know, there isn't the, uh, there's so few ways to uh, make money on it now. Now playing lives become the thing. Right. That's probably the last thing left. You can make money if you're a draw, you know, but it's a bit of a catch-22. How do you become a draw? You know, so I forget what your question was. But... But I should say, I mean, one of the things that I know about you, and you won't say this, but I, I believe you're a very well-respected musician in the well, music community. And that's, you know, I think that that speaks volumes. And also, I think it speaks volumes that 
you've been doing this for as long as you have. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just, I, I know it might not have been that dream thing, but the fact that you said, I want to be in a band or I want to play music at the age of six or seven and you're still doing it. Well, thank you. And that is so true. Um, uh, you know, your peers. Yeah. Um, you know, the world out there is a fickle place. I was surprised to hear, was it on the Grammys? Uh, where when in Drake's um, acceptance speech there, I think it was, was it the Grammys? I think it was the Grammys. Where he, he talked, and I was surprised to hear this from him. Not that I really know that much about him, but he said, uh, he said, you know, this is a very fickle, superficial business. He said, he said something to the effect of, you know, if you're, if you're making people happy, like in your local pub, and reaching people with a message, or he says that's, that's just as, that means as much as mm-hmm. all this big success that's all money and hype driven, you know. Right. Um, and and that's true. And uh, yeah, I I you know I I do feel uh, very lucky um, to be part of the community, and. Uh, and I do feel that what you're saying from other musicians, and and boy, that does mean a lot. Yeah, that does mean a lot because those are the sort of the people that know. Um, no offense to the general public, but you know. <laughs> no, but uh, it's true. But but just also, you know, what I admire about most of the people that I interview is the fact that they went to achieve a dream and they're living that dream in whatever level that they're at. You know, and, and when all is said and done, I think certain musicians or many musicians just want to play music and to be able to do that their entire lives. You know, I, I, I agree. There's nothing. I mean, that's what keeps us there. There's, 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 there's nothing that compares to, uh, and I've heard a bunch of different people try to explain it, but, uh, you know, when you hit that moment when you're, you know, regardless of genre, you're, you're playing in a band and and it all works i mean it's just such a high it's it's you know time stops mm-hmm. it's it's uh you know if you could stay there forever you would i mean that's what it's just nirvana when it when it happens it always has been for me and so that means so much and that and that usually happen that's going to happen with the with the players you're playing with right um so one of the things I, I think I kind of interrupted you were talking about going to Panama, I think, with maybe Lance. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I forgot where we're going with that, but yeah, we're going there with uh, with one of Lance's shows, and um, uh, I forget what my point was, but I mentioned Tommy Emmanuel. Yeah. So I've been watching him, a uh, big so fan of him. So he's playing there. He's on the festival. Wow. So I'm a little I'm a little scared. I've been practicing like like crazy. <laughs> I've got one of his licks down that he shows you how to do on the internet. And I'll be introducing myself as a singer-songwriter that plays guitar. Because, oh, nice. man, the, 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 the crowd that he travels in, and like I've watched a lot of him on, on the internet, and you know he'll be playing with two guys I've never heard of. And, uh, wow, yeah. the players that are out there. Although what little I know about him, because I interviewed somebody who who played with him said what an amazing person he is like just a kind oh nice person totally yeah it's funny you mentioned that because i'm always telling people that like because i've watched him a lot on the internet 
What a beautiful story. What a, what a, what a niche he's found for himself. Like he's not your typical performer. You know, his concerts are almost a combination of a, um, not a lecture, but, uh, um, you know, it's a combination of lessons and a, and a lecture and playing, a little bit of comedy. He's found this niche for himself, and he just totally enjoys it. He says, I'm in the business of bringing joy. He doesn't even call it music. I'm, you know, he says, what I get from the audience and making them laugh and showing them the stuff I can do. And he's so generous. Mm -hmm. Like, he's online. He's like showing you everything that he does. <laughs> And, and, and it's not like the old days where you're trying to cut the other guy and, you, you know, I'm not going to show you. This is my trick that I've learned. He's the opposite. And he's so good that he'll, he'll show you this, you know, amazing licks that he does. And he'll show you. And it's like he's not worried about showing anybody because <laughs> I'll show you and get back to me in 10 years. You, know, right. you might be able to do it as fast as I can. Like, you know, so he... He, what a, he just comes across as this giving guy. You see all the internet stuff of him uh, backstage. He's always got people backstage, and he's sitting with young kids, you know, and playing with mm -hmm. them. He's uh, he's so giving, and he's enjoying it so much. And I think he does like two fifty dates a, a year. Yeah, yeah like he's, he's traveling the world constantly, um, bringing his guitar joy. So it'll be a, a, a treat to meet him. As far as I know, we're all staying at the same resort. And they say in on the site, they say that you know there's jam, lots of jamming goes on and stuff like Maybe that. Maybe you can so, show them a few things. Well, I told a couple of my guitar player friends a joke. I said, "What, which, which finger of his do you want me to break when, I, when I'm down there?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he's he's just so good. I saw two quotes on something I watched. I thought that were very telling. One was um, uh, Eric Idle. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, he said, he's so good. He said, he makes you want to just go and smash your guitar. <laughs> you know? And then I think it was, uh, oh, who was the other? Oh, it was um, John Oates from, from Hall and Oates. He said, um, so watch Tommy Emmanuel. He said, it made me realize that, that I've been coasting for years. Right. Like... And, and I feel like that, too, because I know I would be, you know, I know I have, a, a, I know I have a, a, a talent and I have a really good ear, uh, but I'm not that disciplined. And guitar came pretty easy to me at a young age. And uh, I never had the discipline to, I think would have been a way better player if I would have had the discipline <laughs> to, uh, uh, and this might be a cop out, but I've often thought that. You know, when I, like a solo or a piece of music that's really touched me, and I've taken the time to learn it, and and like you know when I heard it, it was like beautiful and seamless, and then when I took the time, a lot of time to really learn something difficult, it was like all of a sudden I said, oh, there is seams. I see. Yeah, this right. is actually this just put together takes a little bit of the magic out of it. Now, I don't know, that might be just an excuse for being lazy, but there is a beautifulness of not, you know, if you understand it too much, there, right, there's right. a certain beauty that's lost or whatever. But so when you learn something like that, what do you get out of learning that piece of music? 
Because it's probably not a lick that you're going to, or that solo that you're going to steal and put it somewhere else. Right, right. right. Well, sometimes it is. But <laughs> um, oh, just the love of, you know, uh, part the curiosity of, of figuring out how, how something works and what you learn from right. from doing that. And, um, yeah, and then just the, you know, just the, the uh, thrill of being able to, uh, you know the thrill of working something through and 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 this still it. happens. Oh yeah. Like yeah. On well, a I was just say basis. I'm working on one of Tommy's licks that <laughs> that he's got on the internet, and uh, I can play it now, but about third of the speed that that he does it. So I'm I'm hoping I've got it down a little bit, and I'll at least be able to go. Hey, Tommy, check this out. When when are you supposed to be going down there? This is not till March. Next so you have year. some time I to speed it up time. a little bit. Yeah, and I did, um, uh, as you know, on my 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 latest CD there. I do. Uh, I'll see you in my dreams. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if you know the history of that song, but like I learned it. Um, for, you know, it's an old old song from the twenties. Um, but I learned it through Merle Travis. Now Merle Merle Travis, uh, not to be confused with Haggard. Merle Travis is a guy. You know, there's. Travis Picking, there's a style named after him. Um, and it's, you know, with the thumb pick. Right. And it's that style where you're sort of keeping the rhythm and bass going and you're plucking out a melody. Well, Merle, I mean, he learned it from somebody too, but he was one of the pioneers of that. Um, and I'll See You In My Dreams was one of his sort of signature songs. He used to always close the night with it, instrumental. Hmm. Um, and I, I fell in love with that song and I... I spent about two years trying to get close to, um, this is a few years ago now, trying to get close to what, what Merle does there. And, uh, you know, uh, Merle was the one who influenced Chet, right? Chet Atkins. And, you know, I, I read somewhere where Chet heard him on the radio and went to see him when he finally came to town or something, and he couldn't believe he said he thought it was three guys. Me. It turned out to be just Merle Travis. And then Chet took that and perfected it even more, more concise. Um, but anyway, getting back to that tune. So I'll see you in my dreams. So, I mean, not only was it Merle's thing, everyone who's copied that style, uh, Chet, um, Tommy Emanuel, of course, um, Mark Knopfler, if you go online, you can see a million of these guitar slingers doing that tune everyone does it and they go around like a dozen choruses doing all this swing jazz soloing over it that's just you know it's it's beyond what i do so that's another thing that's a little embarrassing the fact that i've done that tune because i i spent two years learning to just sort of play the rhythm part and i sang a verse it's not just an instrumental um but it's like you know Heaven forbid that Tommy Emanuel goes, hey, you did, you did see you in my dreams. Let's, let's you know, jam. How about taking 12 courses on, on, on that solo? And No, no, I'll sing it, but, you know, and I'll play rhythm. But yeah, so that, that's going to be a treat. I forget uh, how that came up, but uh, yeah, what a player. It'd be a yeah. thrill to meet him, thrill to meet him and, oh. and see him play close up, you know. For sure. Because he is just, he's out of this world. And and like you say, he's so um, he's so modest, you know. And even when he's showing you stuff, he says, "You know what? 
It's hours of playing. You know, he was on the road at six. Yeah. I've read a little bit about him. He was, you know, he's an Aussie yeah. from Australia. And they, it was a family show. And they actually traveled and, and had a tent to sleep in, like while they were traveling around. Right. They homeschooled till he was, uh, I think, till his father died. And then the um, government made them go to real school. I think he was about 14. Wow. But he talks about this is nothing you can't do. He says, I've played the guitar four hours a day, every day since I was six. That's why I can do this. And you can do it too. Like he's, I mean, he's obviously very talented. <laughs> you know, not everyone, no matter how much time they spent, could obviously True. get to that level. But he's very modest about, you know, it's just about working and, and you know, <laughs> practicing, you know. My final question to you is, tell me about the relationship you have with your guitar. Can you describe that? Well, it's your ultimate friend, isn't it? It always has been. Um, specifically, the guitar I play now um, uh, is a 63 Stratocaster that I've had since about 1980. And, um, you know, people... I'm on my third case with that guitar. <laughs> so that's the kind of miles it's put in. And it was already beat up when I got it in 1980. But um, I don't know if you meant like specifically a guitar or the guitar. Either. In, in quotes. I mean, if you have that I one I mean, guitar. that guitar has been my, I just love it. I get more compliments on my sound than I do on my playing. Like people, that guitar is just magic. Uh, and has that changed? Has that cha sound changed over the years? Um. No, I don't think too much, you know. But like that said, sound is, is not the guitar, it's you. Yeah, well, it's a bit of both. There's just an amazing sounding guitar. I have a couple of seconds, um, second guitars that, you know, I'll take them the odd gig and it's like, ah, it doesn't, <laughs> it just doesn't, feel-wise and sound-wise right. mostly, right? Um, but... Uh, yeah, you know, people, like, a couple of guys kid me. Like I said, I've been in three cases with that guitar. And, um, uh, you know, people see me with it, and it's like, man, you, you know, jokingly, does he get a new guitar? No, that's the same one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it'll always be uh, best friend, you know. Um, whether you're sitting alone with an acoustic guitar, I think that's, for most songwriters at least, that's ground zero, mm -hmm. you know, sitting with an acoustic guitar and trying to put a couple of phrases together. And <laughs> I mean, boy, watching that country thing, uh, it's all about lyrics, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It seems to be um, what touches the average person. You know, you never have like a non-musician say to you, oh, this is my favorite song, like that guitar solo in it, you know? Right. It's always the lyrics that, that gets them. And boy, is that ever strong in that, uh, has that ever come through in that country stuff, yeah. eh? Although there are some things, like I think of like some Santana tunes. Oh, absolutely. That just, you know, that, that are instrumentals that touch oh. me in a way that... My theory is like, you know, there's, you know, there's poetry and music. You combine the two, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some lyrics do stand on their own, but it's a different animal, the lyric and music put together. Um, most people relate to the lyrics, but then music is so magical too. My theory is that like, you know, 
someone told me it's a different part of the brain. Like, you know, you're hearing a lyric right. and the difference between the way like classical music will affect you and stuff like that, right? Um, uh, I always thought, or jazz instrumental, it's which I love, it's like instrumental music, it, it reaches parts of you that you can't put into words. Like, uh, there's a real depth there yeah, that's yeah. like, you know, that even the best poets can't put into mm -hmm. words, you know? Um, so there's the, all those aspects, you know, coming together or not coming together um, that make for the magic that is, you know, the music that we listen to. And that will be featured on your next country album. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I do have a couple of, you know, and, and then what? what is country anymore? Like, watching that, that series, I look back, like, the... the like I said before, there isn't I'm a little jealous. Like you know, you see these people going to Nashville. Like where there's nowhere to go anymore. Like there's no <laughs> yeah yeah. Like where do you fit in anymore? Like and young artists too. Like you know, I'm older, but like where do the young artists fit in? Because it seems to be all um, very manufactured. Mm -hmm. um, I shouldn't say maybe you know. Perhaps I'm a little not in tune with some of the stuff out there, but there isn't, the, you know, I, f I found watching that series, I found myself jealous. I thought, oh, man, if I was back in those days, yeah, I'd be going to, I got some songs, I'm going to Nashville, I'm going to, it was still uh, a crapshoot, right. but there was at least a crap game. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't even seem like there's there's a game, you know, there, there, there doesn't seem to be that much left. Although uh, I think, I think like yourself, I and I might be wrong, but I just think that if music is in you, that's what you do. You know? Exactly. You know, I guess artists will never go away. We have to do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, call us crazy. <laughs> it's like, you know, putting out a CD. Someone, I was talking to someone the other day, and they were thinking of doing a, another CD, and they said, but then I thought, like, why? Like, what, what possible, you know, like business people, they think in a different way. You know, you have a plan. Where's this going to go? What's yeah, yeah. this? You know, artists were like, we have to do it no matter what. But the, boy, the commerce is is, is really getting iffy yeah. uh, anymore. But thank God you do it, though. Well, you know? thank you. Thank, you know, that's the reward we get. It's always been that. Is You know, artists, they, 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 they want to touch people. They want to communicate. Um, you know, I'm going to do it till I drop. I'm going to do it till I can't do it anymore um i'm thinking of, i'm already thinking of maybe before the end of this year i might even get in the studio to to record again i mean it's it's already a year and a half time yeah. it's already a year and a half since since my last one you know the beatles contract was was two albums a year <laughs> four singles a year right that weren't on the album can you imagine that pace with all that touring and I know, it's crazy. Press and TV, everything that they were doing. Like, they didn't have a minute to themselves. And by the way, come up with two albums, do a movie, and four double-sided singles. And tour. And tour. Like, how, you know, I mean, I went, I went eight years between my, seven, eight years between two CDs. You know, that's the whole Beatle catalog was mm -hmm. done in that time frame. I mean, that's boggles the mind, eh? <laughs> Well, Terry, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's, we've been working on this for a while, and I'm, finding, I'm glad that we finally got to do this. Me too. And um, 
good on you to be doing these things because uh, there's not too many other forums for us guys anymore. Totally my pleasure. Thanks again. You're quite welcome.